0: Dear listener, the following podcast is a discussion between myself and Rob on my favourite Colin Baker story, Vengeance on Varos, which was written by Philip Martin, who sadly passed away on the 13th of December this year. The podcast was recorded prior to his death, and so we are unfortunately unable to sufficiently dedicate time to the remarkably talented and imaginative writer. He will be sadly missed. And so we dedicate the following podcast to him. Rest in peace, Philip Martin. 1938
1: to 2020 the TARDIS cloister bell imminent disaster the cloister bell yes what's that well it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations that's the cloister bell don't worry about that for now it's not really terribly significant the cloister bell oh no Hi
0: everyone and welcome back. Hope you're all fine. I'm Liam and I'm joined by Rob. Hi Rob.
1: Hello everyone. Um, Back again for our second Colin Baker podcast, second in a row. Um, Last week we talked all about my choice which was Revelation of the Daleks Mm -hmm. and today's your choice. Uh,
0: Yes, if you haven't guessed already. um, My favourite Colin Baker story is Vengeance on Varos. Um, So I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. 'Cause it's not just one of my um, it's not just my favourite Colin Baker story, it's one of my favourite Doctor Who's. Um, especially as I've got older, I've found that I've drawn more and more towards it. But um, before we we crack on with that, just a couple of things I want to talk about. First is um, well, we'll we'll get the, the sad news out of the way first. Uh, it's got some tenuous links to Doctor Who which I'll get onto in a second but it's um, one of my favourite authors has recently passed away John le Carre, um, which actually uh, hit me quite a you know quite a bit which I was you know surprised at um, but uh, yeah I was sad, sad, sad of his passing because um, I've enjoyed his work a great deal and it resonates an awful lot um, ha- have you read any of his stuff Rob? Uh, no I haven't
1: but I'm familiar with him
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but if you ever get the chance, and, and obviously this goes out to the listeners as well, if you haven't, I'd certainly recommend um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and the Carter Trilogy, which is Tinker Tailor Soldier, Spy, The Honourable Schoolboy, Smiley's People. There are there are other really good novels, like um, A Small Town in Germany, The Looking Glass War, which tend to get overlooked, but they're really good as well. Um, and the BBC did some fantastic... Adaptations of Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People with Alec Guinness as George Smiley. Um, and this is where the tenuous links come in. So, uh, the production unit manager on Tinker Taylor was Peter Grimwade, who later became a Doctor Who director. Uh, Jeffrey Bergen, who did the music for Terror of the Zygons and the Seeds of Doom, uh, he did the music for Tinker Taylor as well. And both those adaptations, *Tinker Taylor, Smiley's People*, was uh, was produced by everyone's uh, every Doctor Who's fr- friend, Jonathan Powell, one of the people responsible for, for the hiatus that happened during Colin Baker's uh, period. Yeah, um, you know, so he, he he did have some you know some good qualities. Um, but uh, one thing I will say is just that even though John Luker is one of my favourite authors, he he has also, have, funnily enough, written one of my what I regard as one of the worst books I've ever read. It, which is the naive and sentimental lover, um, you know. Just keep away from it. It's awful. Um, but yeah, <laughs> not very respectful to to an author who's just recently passed away. But uh, but yeah. On positive news, you got in contact with me the other day, Rob, about one of our favourite Christmas films, A Muppet Christmas Carol*.
1: Yes. Well, I came about the news of an uh, upcoming four K restoration of *The Muppet's Christmas Carol*. It's mm-hmm. a great movie. Um, We watched it as kids, you'd seen it at the cinema, we both were familiar with it on VHS and uh, it is infamous for having a a song that is not present on the subsequent releases, DVD onwards, um, which apparently was not featured on the theatrical version.
0: Yeah, apparently so. Although I've got... So I must have this f- this fake memory. So what it is is that um, I remember seeing A Mother Christmas Carol at the cinema when I was five. So this was 1992. And I, got, and I remember seeing it at the cinema, very fond memories of it. And then the following Christmas, it came out on VHS and my grandmother, grandmother bought, bought it for me as a Christmas present. And it became a tradition. So I've... I kind of stopped doing it now, although it's still a favorite film of mine. Which was that every Christmas, that would be the, you know the film that I would watch. Um, I kept that tradition, I think, going for about twenty-five years, uh, but then it became a bit. Maybe I would have watched it, maybe not. But anyway, um, I remember getting it as a Christmas present when I was six, and watching it and loving it, and then it was coming to the, that this song. Which apparently wasn't the wasn't in the theatrical release, but I remember watching the video and going, "Oh, it's that song that's coming up." Now that's my memory of it. Now I don't know what it might be—the fact that I'm thinking that I'm watching it seven, thinking it's the first time I'm watching it. But anyway, I seem to have this memory of seeing, hearing the song when I was um, when I was at the cinema. But that's obviously not the case by the sounds of it. But anyway so for many many years watching the VHS version of it and you've got this song and it's actually narratively important because it's the bit where it's you know it's it's during the um Christmas past period you know and Ebenezer Scrooge because he's you know so poor and you know almost destitute that's when his fiance decides to leave him and there's this whole emotional song that takes place um now, I've been very familiar with that song. And actually, over the years, I've come to, to like it more and more. And then finally, when I got A Muppet Christmas Carol on DVD, it must have been the original theatrical version, and I was shocked the song wasn't in there. Just like, what the hell is this?
1: And what what are um, the reasons behind it? Do you think um, not compelling enough? Not enough Muppets in the scene? it's a strange one as well because the song is um love is lost yes that's and it, yeah. it's also it has a bit of a resolve at the end with michael Caine's love is found song in the hmm. film's conclusion
0: yes yeah exactly yeah uh and i was thinking that unless it was running time and maybe i mean i mean the song is not all that long it's like what maybe two minutes or roundabout it's not Maybe they just thought, oh, it, it slows the pace of the movie down. Let's just get rid of it. Um, but this is—it's been interesting because you you told me that, and then um, the day that that story came out, everyone seemed to be on Twitter, being terribly excited. One about the restoration, but the fact that this lost song um, is being reinstated into the film,
1: exclusively on the, um, Disney Plus, I think. Uh, oh, right, okay. I, I, oh, and for sorry, and for the 4K release, yeah.
0: Oh, that's a relief. Because uh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not signing up to you know another thing with which is Disney. I mean, I love Disney films, you know, we all do. But uh, no, right, okay, great. So I can buy it. Watch Wait, it and listen. what
1: about all the Disney Plus exclusives? I'm not bothered. What, <laughs> what about all the Marvels? You no, know, watching the Man- the Mandalorian. No. no. <laughs> There's enough to be getting
0: on with but oh God, I can't be bothered to get bogged up. What's this? Because Disney are going to be making a whole load of other Star Wars stuff, mm-hmm. aren't they? Uh,
1: yes. Um, they're on season two of The Mandalorian, mm. um, which is a Disney Plus exclusive show. Uh, they also include the entire back catalogue of the, uh, the animated series Clone Wars Onwards, mm. um, which are regarded as the new canon still. Um, Because all all the old um, expanded universe stuff is now regarded as legends, and all the new stuff is regarded as canon. So there's a distinction between the two. The Mandalorian, um, well, in fact, the movies as well. I think Solo and Episode Nine both take aspects from the animated series, the Clone Wars, Um, and the Mandalorian follows on from the mythology of the Clone Wars animated series as well, in live action with a lot of the returning actors um, here and there. Uh, but um, with regards to the live action, uh, I think there's two or three new live action shows coming out, and they're all going to tie in at some point.
0: <laughs> Great. And then, um, uh, which reminds me of some o- excellent news, which if is if 2020 wasn't bad enough, it's recently been announced that um, Mrs. Brown's Boys, that excellent sitcom that everyone really enjoys, although people must do, is being commissioned until 2026. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but who watches that crap? Um, for those that, that don't know, Mrs. Brown's Boys is a BBC sitcom, um, which... For reasons beyond the realm of normal human understanding, has been going on for years. No one seems to like it, yet no one. But obviously, the fact it's been constantly recommissioned, people must be watching it. But I've never met anyone who's watched it. Have you? Well, y- yeah. The way I
1: see oh. it, um, everyone likes it but me. So I'm amazed that you don't like it. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, okay. <laughs> I- I'm hanging out with the wrong sort. I think. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It uh, the, the popularity of that show, I really don't understand it. But anyway, there you are. So, uh, one more thing that I want to uh, want to talk about. Uh, but now we're slowly starting to, to get into the realm of Vengeance on virus I want to talk about video nasties. What do, what does that term mean to you?
1: Good slash bad. Um, nice cheap horror films from the seventies and eighties. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. So what it is is that um, video nasties was a term that was coined in Britain during the early 1980s. And what that was, it's basically what you said, Rob, it applied to films that were distributed on video cassette because this was during the time when the, the home entertainment market was really starting to, to pick up. And in fact, the 1980s was really the first decade that saw um, cinema attendance really started to decline, And a big part of that was because of this home entertainment market and people being able to buy video video cassettes um, but video nasties were video cassettes that were criticised for their violent content, these were horror films and what it is is that at that time there was no regulatory system for video sales and those films were low budget with explicit horror and so this started the, the, so this, this moral crusade and there was this concern that was raised at the possible ease children could you know, watch movies such as, you know, The Drillica is, is you know, the one movie that tends to get mentioned an awful lot when people think of video nasties. Cannibal Holocaust and mm. Sex with the Headless Corpse of the Virgin Astronaut. Don't that last that one, one. No, that, that that one's made up, but uh, that is a reference to something. If any listener gets the reference to that, I'll be incredibly impressed. Uh, I, if you're just Robert, I'll tell you what I'm referencing later on. Okay. Um, Um, But this also led to lazy arguments that these films were causing an increase in violent crime amongst young people in society uh, for real. So all this concern surrounding video nasties resulted in what was called the Video Recordings Act 1984. Um, And what this did was this act introduced classification certificates. So this is when, you you know, the U Certificate PG... Certificate 12 didn't exist at the time, so it went straight from PG to 15 and then 18. But then it also censored films, apparently, like on really spurious claims and suggestions that they were the cause of serious social or anti-social acts. Um, so that's where video nasties all comes from. It was, this, you know, it was really big in the early 80s. And so with all that in mind, it's perhaps unsurprising that Philip Martin, who is known as a political writer, uh, when he penned a Doctor Who story, he sort of picked up on all this and what he did was there are other things in the story but it explores the idea that violent and disturbing images are bad for the brain so that's really the sort of the genesis of all, of all that so that's why I wanted to mention um, video nasties um, but before we look at Vengeance on Varus I just want to say that uh, Rob and I have already discussed our favourite Hartnell, and Pertwee, Tom Baker and Peter Davison stories um, so if you would like us to hear If you would like to hear us discuss The Aztecs, The Crusade Tomb of the Cybermen, The Invasion, Frontier in Space, The Sea Devil City of Death, The Seats of Doom, Earthshock Resurrection of the Daleks And as we mentioned uh, previously, Rob's favourite Colin Baker story, Revelation of the Daleks Do check those out uh, There are other stories in our podcast archive as well, uh, including all the Jody Whittaker stories and several Big Finish audio adventures.
1: Yeah and in the new year, we'll be co- concluding this um, this range with um, our favourite McCoy stories.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, so, look out for those. And you you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Cloyster Bell. We're at Twitter at Podcast Bell, Instagram, Cloyster underscore Bell. Our website is cloisterbellpodcast.com. And you can get in contact, uh, Twitter is probably the best place to get in contact with us, but all those you can get in contact with us, then please do. But please do get in contact, because we love to hear from you, uh, just to let us know what you think of the podcast and Doctor Who and whatnot, and all the rest of it. So, with
1: all that, let's go on with Vengeance on Varos. Great, so um, it is a two-part story again. They're all two-part mm-hmm. stories in Season 22, aren't they?
0: Mostly, uh, the three doctors—the three doctors, the two doctors—is three episodes. <laughs> um, so, so I just got, got confused by the numbers, um, but yeah. Apart from that, all of them are, are two-parters. And at this point, I mean, this is the only period in classic Doctor Who where the episode lengths are not the twenty-five-minute episodes; these are forty-five minutes. Um, but as we said when we were reviewing uh, the Colin Baker's Dalek story. If you're expecting the sort of the pace of modern Doctor Who, which for the most part has mainly been 45-minute episodes, there's really no comparison. Um, and this isn't a criticism; I just think it's a, it's a general observation. Even though these are 45-minute episodes, the, the pacing isn't as fast as in the in the current series.
1: Not at all. Um, even though they're odd minute episodes, um, not to say it's a bore, but it does drag on. at a different pace.
0: Yeah, yet <laughs> it drags on Um not how quite I would phrase it but yes Um I wasn't so, like, I think, w-
1: checking my watch thinking when's this going to
0: end I remember the first, so the first time I ever saw uh, one of because I didn't know Colin Baker's first season had 45 minute episodes until I bought I think, it was Mark of the Rani was my first um, Colin Baker story from season 22 and um I remember because I I got this video and got home and I was pest- pestering my you know my parents. Oh, I want to watch this. I want to watch this. And they went, no, we don't want to watch. Anyway, finally they relented on the basis that, look, I'll only watch one episode. It's one episode, twenty five minutes. I went right, okay. And then so we're, we're all watching this episode. My parents somewhat reluctantly. And then the episode seems to be going on longer and longer and longer. Just like, what's going on? Yeah, they weren't happy. They 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 assumed that I knew and that. <laughs> <laughs> force them to watch episode one of you know 45 minutes of Mark of the Row and he's like what's, what's the problem it's great um but I think the reason why it has this uh, slower pace or it drags on is uh, I think uh, that's not what I meant I,
1: re- <laughs> <laughs> I was empathising with what you said <laughs>
0: <laughs> never gonna let like, just, just, you know that time when he kept on saying that you know Colin Baker stories drag on um so at this point, Eric Saywood is the script editor and uh, I think his approach to having longer episodes was actually what he does is he uses that opportunity to establish the situation, the scenario, the location and the characters in there. He I think he uses that, you know, the longer length to establish all that and then bring in the doctor and the companion bringing them into the story so i think he sets up things in a bit more detail and i think yeah. that's why it seems to have a slower a slower pace
1: yeah yeah that's exactly how it plays out because it begins with the um the torturing and the also this couple that were introduced to watching mm. um the reality tv <laughs> was it a bit yeah. ahead of its time this show
0: I think, very, yeah, very much so, and I think, I think a lot of people, uh, and I'm one of them, have tended to say, great story, but as time's gone on, it seems to become more and more relevant. Or, at the very least, it hasn't become less relevant. Um, so, plot synopsis. Um, the Doctor visits the planet Varos to obtain supplies of a rare ore called Zyton 7, which turns out is vital to the functioning of the TARDIS. Yeah. Varos was once a colony for the criminally insane, and the descendants of the original guards still rule, and it's a world now where political prisoners and their guards are all subjected to, and entertained by, sadistic tortures and executions which the colonies inhabitants view and vote on through interactive television. Accused of being alien infiltrators helping the colony's rebel factions, the Doctor and Perry find themselves the latest unwilling subjects in this most extreme form of reality television. Varus' governor has been trying to negotiate a better export price for Zyton ore from Sill, who is an envoy from the Galatron Mining Corporation. The Doctor and Perry meet two rebels, um, Jondar and Aretta. Perry and Aretta are captured and almost reshaped into beast-like creatures by Quillam, the dome sadistic command uh, commandant, but the Doctor saves them and tells the governor the true value of Zyton 7. Quillum and... Varus' chief officer, who are in pay of the corporation, try to kill the Doctor and the Governor, but are themselves dispatched. Sil plans an invasion of Varos by a force from his own world, Thoros Beta, but the corporation veto this and instruct him to buy the Zaiton Ore at any price. So, Cast Crew... Uh, Colin Baker plays the Doctor. Perry is played by Nicola Bryant. Arak is played by Stephen Yardley, who previously appeared in Genesis of the Daleks. Areta is played by Geraldine Alexander. Bax, Graham Cull, the Chief Officer, is played by Forbes Collins. Etta is played by Sheila Reed, who would later appear in Dark Water and the Time of the Doctor as Clara's grandmother. The Governor is played by Martin Jarvis, who had previously appeared in The Web Planet and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Uh, John Doe is played by Jason Connery, and as the name suggests, is actually the the son of Sean Connery. Maldak is played by Owen Teal, who would later appear in the Torchwood episode Countryside. Quillam is played by Nicholas uh, Chagrin. Rondal is played by Keith Skinner and Syl is played by Nabil Shaban who would later return to play Syl in the Mind Warp episodes of The Trial of a Time Lord. Director is Ron Jones. Uh, He previously directed Black Orchid, Time Flight, Arkham Infinity, Frontios and later would direct the Mind Warp section of The Trial of a Time Lord. Uh, Incidental music is by Jonathan Gibbs and he had scored The King's Demons, Warriors of the Deep and later would score Mark of the Rani. Producer... As you probably all know, was Jonathan Turner, script editor Eric Sayward, and as I mentioned before, writer was Philip Martin. So Rob, was this a... Uh, I I mean I'm assuming that you've you'd seen Ven- Vengeance on Pharaohs previously, is that right?
1: Yeah, um, not until the DV- until I got the DVD originally. And I don't think I'd watched it much since. So it was quite cool checking it out. But I really enjoyed it. Um for me. Syl was the standout character here, and there's a lot of interesting themes in the story. Is it a reflection of what past fears or future fears? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as it becomes more relevant with the crazy reality TV, <laughs> we're not quite there yet.
0: No, but I mean, you could you could say that with because really um, the emergence of the emergence of reality television is obviously far more recent. Uh, it wasn't around when Vengeance on Virus was actually made. Um, but there is this this sense of, you know, people getting enjoyment out of people's misfortunes. You know, you with with programmes like Britain's Got Talent and the X Factor and stuff like that. I don't know yeah you know, I don't know how often you've heard it, but you know, people saying that they really enjoy it when, in the early stages of the programmes when you got people like embarrassing themselves and
1: mm.
0: Yeah, and it's just you know, it's a it's a <laughs> bit you know
1: sounds a bit sadistic yeah um, well, this is just people getting killed and tortured it's um mm-hmm.
0: so um so yeah so if people get more well actually because there was uh a, a, what was his name Nigel Neil, who who's famous for writing Quatermass he wrote a television program in 1968 called Year of the Sex Olympics and what that was uh that was a, a science fiction program that he wrote and what that was Funnily enough, it, it was about um, reality television. So that was made in 1968. So that was decades ahead of its time. And, so, and what that was about was that the population are um, numbed by reality television. And they just constantly watch it. And it's all sort of sex and titillation. Until um, there's, a, there's a mishap in one of the television programs. And someone is accidentally killed and because this is then something completely new it peaks audiences interest a lot more and then and then what then what begins to emerge is incredibly violent brutal murderous television programs as a means to, as a means of mass entertainment um and so i think it's safe to say that although philip martin was obviously inspired by the whole ferrari surrounding video nasties that we talked about earlier um I think it's safe to say that probably the year of the Sex Olympics probably also had an influence on this story. Although Philip Martin does make it its own. I'm not suggesting it's a rip-off or anything like that. Vengeance and Ferris is still very much its own thing.
1: You can make a comparison here because, like you said, um, the people have become numb to um, these sensations. We wouldn't watch this kind of entertainment now. But it's believable that it could get to that stage. I mean, looking back... um, of like gladiator fights and people just would just go for entertainment um things like that and it was just uh it's the kind of thing that we're just used to
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well again so it's yeah the ancient romans and this you know and that whole thing of bread and circuses and it's you know it's been rec- you know by historical analysis you know the, the decline of the roman empire and this whole thing of it becoming incredibly decadent and you know 400 days of mass entertainment and of you know of you know uh, uh, you know the brutal gladiator fights and all the rest of it um so it's been this running uh thread through popular culture and i think when it's adapted into science fiction uh such as this it's uh, it's one it's a con- it's a concern of, of people's interests and tastes but also concerned of, well where are we going as a civilization let's look at that i mean Avengers: Errors doesn't hold anything back. I mean, we are as soon as the story starts, like you said before, we're introduced to basically torture. So we have John Darr, who's the, uh, Jason Connery's character, and he's chained up and he's being blasted by what looks like a powerful laser, and he's in absolute agony. This, is, and then it's established that this is being watched as entertainment in people's homes, and the and this is his form of. And not forgetting at the time as well, during the early 80s, there was a talk, people were concerned about whether capital punishment ought to be returned or not. Because um, Margaret Thatcher, who was the then Prime Minister, had been quite open that she would actually prefer capital punishment to return. So I think that obviously filters into this. Um, and there's, you know, there's a big concern about, well, if you do have um, capital punishment... It's, it's a bit disturbing when it, you know, it's, it's relished as, as entertainment. And in fact, because funnily enough, Charles Dickens, because uh, he was pro-capital punishment, but he made an observation on a very famous um, hanging during his time that although he, although he was pro-capital punishment, the thing that really disturbed him was the, the public's relish at viewing these sort of things. Um, so this is incorporated into the story as, as well. And this is all quickly established, but then also the fact of, well, why is this man being tortured and it's going to be, well, he's eventually going to be killed as a form of punishment. And the reason why he's been punished is um, it's very interesting, the, the things that he's been said to be guilty of. One of them is having wrong thoughts. So there's this element of thought crime, not thinking the right thoughts, and so it's like, right, okay, so we have a really dictatorial, uh, totalitarian regime here.
1: The population does have a vote, mm-hmm. Um, it's a compulsory vote. Is the vote just just kind of a facade, really? Because there's no, um, the people have no control, really, do they? Um, have any groups or. Government or political systems operated like that in history before, where the people have had a vote, but and, and 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 then the vote doesn't really change society.
0: Yeah, we have. I mean, from from the lesser end of the scale. I mean, you you've got countries like Australia, where I think it's basically if you don't vote, you you receive a fine. I don't. I, I've forgotten how. I don't. F- depends on whether you regard the the fine as punitive or not. I think it might be 20 Australian dollars, although it's been quite a while since I've read about what. But anyway, it's basically so if, if you don't vote, um, you could receive a fine. Um, but yes, there have been other places where, funnily enough, you get 100% voter turnout. Which always mm-hmm. tends to be a sign that some for some of some sort of fraud is going on, but in terms of Varos, what I find interesting in relation to this is that because you're right, people are allowed to vote, but it doesn't seem to change anything and this is this is philip martin's because again it seems you know it's analyzing and critiquing democracy. What is interesting uh in terms of varros because it's it's not flagged up, but it is there in a line of dialogue um that everything is done through referendum so any suggestion that the governor makes all has to be voted on um, and so it's interesting so varus operates on this constant referendum basis
1: mm. so there's constant accountability and well that's the, the idea it, so it's the blame goes on the person not the system
0: yes But also that that, that means that, well, you can't have a person who has a a manifesto and gets voted on the basis of that manifesto and then they are allowed to carry out the promises of that manifesto in the way that they see fit. What it means is that any possible change that they want to implement always has to get voted on. Now, in terms of the story on Varos, um, the governor, um, what he wants to do is be able to sell Zyton 7 at a higher price. So he can improve the living conditions of the people of Varos. But he has his ha- hands tied because um, Sil, who's the main villain of the story, um, is a representative of the Galatron Mining Corporation. And he's forcing Varos to sell him Zyton 7, which is this incredibly rare ore, at ridiculously low prices. Mm. So the the population because they don't have comfortable living standards, they're having to basically live, you know, they're working their fingers to the bone, as is established by the the two characters, Arak and Aretta, who who we see as just, you know, observers during the course of this uh, of this thing. But they're, they're living hand to mouth. And so when the governor is basically saying, look, um, this is what I'm proposing in order to increase our living standards, but what that will mean is less food supplies for, I don't know, two days or whatever. But this overworked, almost to the point of starving pop, uh, population are going to go well. No, I want you know I want my food now, today. So they're having to f- constantly think in terms of in terms of the in terms of the short term, while well, the governor is trying to improve things to the medium to short term. So when he's faced with a population like that, and he's you know voting, look, this is what I'm proposing. Vote. Um. Obviously. The, He's going to be—you'll tend to be voted against because that means well, there's a delay in me uh, in me getting my food supply. So, so not only do you have the, this this comment on democracy and what would it mean? Well, if we were to live in a direct democracy where one is able to vote on everything, the irony of that would be nothing actually changes. Um, but obviously, and then you've got this thing of with regards to capitalism with regards to what Syl represents and what he is doing in terms of the story. So it's like what you've said, there's an awful lot going on. Obviously, when I first watched this story back when I was, I don't know, seven or whatever, all what, I, all what I'm seeing is, you know, the, the the Doctor, Perry, and who they team up with being in a horrible situation and trying to escape from it. So you're just seeing it in very simplistic terms. But this is one of the, the re- reasons why, you know, the... the much older watching it you you know you're seeing all these layers and it, you know, you're know, you aware of how actually rich all this story is
1: yeah and you're aware of how this compares to the real world it's funny you've got the governor making choices In in reality sometimes the bad choice could be political suicide but in this case it could be just suicide <laughs> literally yeah um, yeah
0: because um, cause in the story if he gets voted against um, he you know he um there's this huge, powerful, essential laser beam, which is there, which can actually break him down. But, you know, he fights on and he's, he's strong and he, he somehow manages to survive just. But, you yeah. know, it all, it all goes into the, you know, how violent this this world is. Mm. Um, and then, because the other thing as well is that, so the governor is is trying to, to you know, improve the economy as much as possible. So what he does is because he has all this video footage of all the the tortures and the executions uh, which take place on Varos, he's come up with this very enterprising idea, um, which is he sells these videos to other worlds as a means of entertaining them. So what is used as a means to entertain but also um, deter any potential rebels on Varos is then used as a means to sell on and entertain others, and it's that video nasties element of, of the story. <laughs> mm. But what's interesting is that when Syl finds out about this, I mean, he he's really gleeful because T- T- Syl's a fantastic character. Nabil Shaban just plays him fantastically well. I never thought of this before. Uh, until I watched this story recently, for the purpose of this podcast, uh, right. and I was wondering if the, I was wondering if Philip Martin had put in a bit of a parody of the BBC at this point. So what it is is that Sil finds out about the, the selling of these uh, these these videos being sold sold of torture, and he asks if they are instructive as well as entertaining. And the BBC's remit since its inception was to inform, educate, and entertain. Um, so I was just you know if Sills asking if these videos are instructive as well as entertaining I wonder if there was a ver- unless I'm just like ridiculously over analysing the story but I wonder if that was just a, a bit of a subtle parody of the BBC at play there.
1: yeah I like that uh,
0: idea <laughs> I do as well so it's like I might be overlooking at it but hopefully you can see where I'm coming from um, <laughs> so I mean all the, all this is, is established really quickly and I think Philip Martin has really set up Varos and the situation Incredibly well and I love this story an awful lot but um, there's something I want to get out of the way I-, I wanted to mention it earlier but um, there is something that I don't particularly like about this story and it actually I think goes into the pacing that we were talking about before and how Eric Saywood was using the 45 minute thing to structure the story so Perry and the doctor you know all this is established and it's very great and it's very interesting and Perry and the doctor Arrive on Varos... I've forgotten the the length of time... But quite a bit into the the episode. I don't particularly like... How that takes place. So what it is is that... The Perry and the Doctor are in the TARDIS. And the TARDIS stops working. And it turns out that it's run out of Zyton 7.
1: And we're thinking,
0: what? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's a little bit contrived. You know, we we've never heard of this before. We don't hear of it again. It's clearly for the purposes of why would the doctor arrive on Varos? Um. Da, 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 and all the rest of it. I don't actually mind that too much. It's plot contrivance, but it makes sense in the confines of the story and it gets it allows the doctor to get involved in the political situation of Varos once he arrives. Fine. What I don't like is how the doctor behaves. He, you know, um turns out, you know, Zyton 7's run out, Um, the TARDIS can't, can't operate anymore, and rather than doing the thing that we would see with previous and future doctors, which would be like, right, let's get mucked in and try to sort this out, he, he he becomes really sort of glum and passive, doesn't he?
1: Hmm.
0: And, I don't particularly like that, and you know, and you've got Perry there who's trying to, you know, pick him up, and, um, yeah, you know, and, and and yeah, come on, sort yourself out. Think of something. Um, I mean, it only goes on for probably what I don't know that whole thing. Probably what of all the five minutes. I'm not yeah. entirely sure, but uh, it's the it's the one bit of the story that I'm not particularly keen on. I just don't like how the Doctor's written in that particular moment. Um,
1: no, I do like how he says like, "You're okay. You'll die. <laughs> I'll live on." <laughs> when they're trapped in the TARDIS.
0: <laughs> yeah, nice one, uh, Doc. Yeah, you know, um, there is something sort of like humorous in that, and I, I actually quite—I <laughs> do like that line. And it, so, even though I don't like the overall sort of the idea and how the doctors behaved, but in terms of some of the dialogue that emerges from that, is actually quite good. So I think it gets away with it from that.
1: But... Food for thought: What if the doctor never needed Zygon Seven? Whatever it was, like the Mercury situation, all over again.
0: What so? He's aware of Varos in the first place, and then he's faked the Zion thing just you to t- get
1: there. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: it's interesting. I, th- I think, funny enough, well, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor sort of does that in a later story, but I'm not going to mention which one because that's for a future podcast. Quite in the near in the near future, but um. Ah, intre- I had thought of that. It's an interesting idea. But in terms of how the story unfolds, you kind of go, I'm like, kind of like, well, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why the hell would you want to come here? The place is depressing.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, I just wanted to get that criticism out of the way because really that's the only bit of the story that I'm not particularly keen on. But it's 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 you know it's early on and it operates as a means of getting the Doctor to Varos. This is a big contrivance, but I can kind of forgive it. And then once the Doctor arrives... You know, obviously, you know that he, he basically really throws himself into just getting himself involved. There's no, there's no messing about. Um, he frees Jason, uh, Jason Connery's character, and you know, pairs up with a you know a bunch of rebels. And then there's this wonderful situation where they're put in oh, awful <laughs> wonderful situation, but they're put in awful situations, and they try to determine well, is it a real physical threat? Is it psychological? And then you've got. Uh, Arak and Aretta sort of sort of being us the audience commenting on it. And you know, and I love that, that thing where they cause they're just watching it as we're watching it. Yeah. And she's pointing at the screen going, I like him, the one in the funny clothes and she, you know, she's you know, she's really, really sort of like relishing and enjoying it. So th- there's a bit of a, um I mean the,
1: It was it was a bit like Revelation how the DJ was seen a lot, but mm-hmm. the the guards of the facility weren't. And I feel like that's happening again here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point, actually. But obviously, I mean, these two are obviously supposed to represent uh, the entire Varos population. But there is a bit of a almost breaking in the fourth wall type thing going on, or maybe being a little bit postmodern, because they're clearly there to represent us, the audience, as well as a means of establishing what Varos is and what it's about. Um, So it's a double-edged thing. And usually, I'm not one for postmodernism. Uh, I just think it's sort of like an idea where people try to think. You know, it tends to be you know oh, you think you're much more clever than your own good, and actually, what you've done is establish something which keeps on taking me out of the drama. But it's some, but it can work. And this is an occasion where I think it works. Um, and I think it, I think it works. I think yeah. it works very well.
1: Yeah, I like how they kind of bicker about the voting. Um, mm. It's a bit like households in general, you know, people have got different political views mm-hmm. um, and they kind of fall out over votes, don't they?
0: Yeah, but again, because that's another interesting thing as well because surveillance is everywhere in this story. and um, But it's interesting, the surveillance is not seen in the home, but then it doesn't need to be because you've got this married couple and she's being the very good citizen and she will more than happily shop her husband if he ever puts a line wrong. Um, mm. and again unfortunately this is something that is that's been seen in uh, um in many you know uh communities i mean i i think mainly of you know the eastern bloc during the cold war um, the stasi in east berlin and and so on where you had people who were seemingly very happy to to shop others um i don't want to go too much too much into it um but we're also kind of seeing it in the current covid era as well with uh with the way that people's neighbors like. oh asses mind your own bloody business anyway <laughs> that's not, I get there um yeah. but you know you know what I mean it's it, you know it's a, it's a tendency so again you know that, that's something that um that gets commented upon in this story as well yeah um so it's a tendency, you know, it's something that we, we recognize in, in human nature, but obviously it becomes much more prevalent with the erosion of liberty. And we've seen, as I said, you know, you see it in places like East Berlin and the Eastern Bloc and the USSR and so on, as well as other totalitarian regimes. So, again, you know, that's something else which is which is brought into the mix. And one of the things that I think is, is really um, great about Philip Martin's storytelling here is that all these elements are here, but you don't feel like you're being hit over the hammer with them. They're just, you know, these are ideas and these are, you know, it's satire, which is, I just think, very expertly woven in to the story. He, he manages to take these themes, which he really wants to explore and just manages to establish them and go with them in a, in a very, um, very deft, skillful way. Um, you know, it's all very well being able to, look, I'm very interested in these, these ideas, these political ideas, um, but to write it in a way which is which is engaging and thought-provoking, and not not feel like you're being hit over the hammer with a political message, you know, I just you know that's where the skill lies. Um, and that, and as we've you know as we've said, there's there's an awful lot going on in this story, and so so the Doctor Perry and the rebels that he's that he's um, joined up with. They're having to deal with all these, as I said, th- these horrors in, the, in the, what's called the Punishment Dome. And of course, being a Doctor Who story, you know, the Doctor and Perry have to, have to become separated. And what then happens is I think, I mean, I always remember this when I, fir- when I very, very first watched uh, this story when I was seven this whole moment I'm just being made incredibly thirsty and as soon as episode one was finished I needed to get a glass of water and down it so the object gets lock, locked up in this portion of the punishment dome, and what then ends up happening is this sort of the psychological torture starts taking place where he believes he is trapped in a desert and his mind therefore thinks that you know he he's about to die of dehydration it's incredibly well performed by Colin Baker that whole scene it's brilliantly well directed the 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 footage of the desert and the studio blends in very well and Jonathan Gibbs's uh, score is is expert but again we we have this it's almost this this postmodern sort of wink at the audience with the, in terms of how the the cliffhanger is but i just think i think this is one of the best cliffhangers ever in a doctor who story so you have the governor and the people who are on Varos who are watching this preparing it as a television broadcast so they're preparing all the video footage mm-hmm. and they're watching the doctor collapse and to the seemingly point where seemingly die yeah. seemingly die and then it goes you know cut in on final death throes it goes close up on the doctor's face and they're watching this on the on the television monitor and it goes and cut it now i just love i love how that whole thing is shot i love how it's performed but of course it's the whole a, a cliffhanger in the story is the cliffhanger to the program so it's the whole sort of like postmodern wink to the audience but in a way that really works so yeah. laughs is head, uh, head off and then <laughs> and, th- and then we go straight into the t- uh, the title sequence i just think it's I, I mean what do you
1: think of it i don't think i'd thought about it the way you had um it does r- work really well i eh? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, again, you might think oh, he's just overanalyzing it again, but I mean, obviously, when I first watched it, I didn't didn't read it. Oh, you could look at it in this sort this of postmodern way of a cliffhanger within a cliffhanger type thing. You just accept it for what it is, and I think it works at face value. But I do think Philip Martin has incorporated that um, um, sort of have, <laughs> having his cake and eat it type thing, I suppose you you could say. So yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the best cliffhangers of Doctor Who, and then we go into the second episode. Well, of course, the Doctor isn't dead. I mean, this was only Colin Baker's third story, wasn't it? <laughs> As the Doctor, that's right, yeah. So, anyway, of course, he he isn't uh, dead, but he he's being prepared uh, for his body to be burnt in, well, to be completely destroyed in an acid bath. And again, you've got Arik and Aretha watching all this. And again, it, I just like this. It's just a nice little sort of moment where, so you see, uh, you see them these two guards and what they've done is they've got a dead body which is wrapped up in, in, in plastic lowered into the acid bath and destroyed. And you've got Arik who who's commenting on this and just gone, they always do that. That's just to show how corrosive the acid is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, that's sort of like that smart RC viewer commenting on the thing, you know, but being an expert on this type of entertainment. So, you know, it's they feel like very real characters. Um, in this, in this horrible world but uh, I quite like that moment uh, I think it says an awful lot within just a few words um, but then you get this one of the most controversial moments actually in Doctor Who because the Doctor recovers which startles the two guards there and they fall into the acid bath uh, and are you know, destroyed by acid yeah. um, uh, I mean what are your thoughts on this scene?
1: Of when the doctor pushes them in,
0: well, he doesn't push them in. He doesn't. Uh, but I mean, because what ends up happening is he's end up. One mm, falls in. He ends up having a fight with the other, and the guy who fell in grabs the other guy and pulls him in. Yeah. But it's, know, it's, it's who
1: it's who co- who was pushing? Who was pulling? It's like a Ouija board. <laughs> you'll just never know.
0: <laughs> and um, then the the, the, the it's, doctor. It's, has the, 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 it's the
1: doctor going back to his roots. You know, you know that that caveman killing guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i um, i know this is a bit of a controversial scene with people um but yeah he didn't, yeah he, he didn't blatantly push them in no, he, no, no. He, well it, it was either him or them mm. so in that respect it's a, a matter of survival
0: well yeah exactly i mean put your- put yourself at issues i mean I certainly wouldn't be going, you know what mate it's all right i'll just will i i'll just jump in yeah, i'll jump in Um <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> So, I've never been um, particularly bothered about the scene. I think it works. Again, it just establishes more of the sort of thing that we know
1: about this world. Um, I think it perhaps would have helped some viewers if the Doctor had shown a bit more empathy. Or, or yeah, the struggle. the struggle was a bit more clear-cut about what was actually happening.
0: Well, funny enough, because I think one thing that bugs people about it is his, his quip at the end, which is, uh, oh, what does he say? Uh, I hope you don't mind. No, uh, oh, have forgotten the line. It's something on the lines of, uh, I hope you don't mind. I won't join you or something like that.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, and I think a lot of people are more bothered about the fact that the, you know, the, the doctor was a bit sort of like frivolous about it and just throws off this
1: quip. But you know what? He's been around death for hundreds of years. Mm. And I think this is just how people cope with it. Look look at people that live in war zones or that fight in wars Mm. and they cope with death by, by just getting on with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a bit like, it's 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 a bit like the, the viewers are numb to this sensation. Now they've been a bit desensitized to it. Um, likewise, the doctor doesn't stop to mourn everyone. And you know what? Sometimes humor just helps you get through things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, humour can be an amazing coping mechanism.
1: Yeah, I agree with all that.
0: And in fact, to be perfectly honest, this scene has never bothered me. But maybe that's because I'm just a horrible, distorted individual. Who knows? But, um, no, I've I've never been bothered by it.
1: Uh. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis in the new era about um, the companion keeping the Doctor on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've even got the the high point of the Time Lord Victorious, of the Doctor having no one there keep him on track um even in is it the runaway bride where donna kind of pulls him back on track because he's going to kill the rachnos in this scenario um could you say does that say more about perry she's not um she's not doing good enough job (laughs) (laughs) to keep him in check
0: perry you're bloody useless um that's a good point because I mean the the relationship between the doctor and Perry isn't always that hasn't isn't necessarily the most warm relationship
1: that we've seen with a companion It's not it's, but not to say Perry's not a strong character but mm-hmm. would potentially a stronger character play off with the sixth doctor better in the sixth doctor wouldn't have so much bite to him That's
0: true I mean that, that's something that Big Finish have done uh, you know, because they pair him off with oh, what's her name? She likes chocolate cake. Yeah, Evelyn Smythe. Evelyn Smythe, yes. Uh, you know, lovely character, but you know she's strong, and but because of her sort of like temperament, it seems to soften the Sixth Doctor a bit, and that relationship works really well. I mean, and, and in terms of the television thing, we we do see the relationship between the Doctor and Perry start to become warmer. I mean. You know that certainly happens by the time we get to the Dalek story, and by the time we get to Mind Warp, you know they clearly enjoy each other's company, which you know, which is which is nice to
1: see. And yeah, we we kind of saw that with Capaldi and Clara, didn't we? At first,
0: yes, we did actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: and of course, the Doctor was extremely fond of her, but he was unsure if she wanted to be with him, um, and he he had had his defenses up.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, But I think in this story, I mean, well, actually, because what's interesting, I think in this story and Mark of the Rani, we arguably see the relationship between the Doctor and and Perry um, start to develop more. Um, So in Mark of the Rani, for example, the Rani actually says of Perry, uh, she actually calls her useless. And the Doctor straight in there, not to me she isn't, and you do well to remember that. You know, so that, you know, that's quite, you know, quite a nice moment. Um, it shows that he generally cares, you know, and he makes, and obviously he makes a point of, of saving Perry from being turned into a bird. Yeah. That sounds bloody ridiculous. And you're going, what? Um, yeah, there's, a, again, there's this uh, scientific experiment uh, thing that takes place within this story. And, um I mean it it sounds ridiculous when you go yeah um you yeah, know Perry almost gets turned into a bird um but actually within in terms of the story it actually makes sense and it works. Mm-hmm. Or do you disagree?
1: Um no, it does work. Yeah. Um it it kind of goes in line with uh, a bit of body horror.
0: Mm, yeah. And the way that it sort of like works in the story is that they have a means of tapping into um the mental anxieties of their victim, and whatever their anxieties are, physically transform them into something else. So that's how it's explained in the story. Yeah, I think it, I think it works in terms of certainly how Philip Martin has has written into it and how he has some of the, the characters explain. Yeah, you're right. The science isn't explained, but the psych the psychology of it is explained. It makes sense that something this horrible would be on a plate in a world like this. And mm. you know, Perry turns into a bird because, according to Quillam she's someone who would like to fly away from danger and you go well that sort of makes that makes sense given you know how much dangerous situation she's been in since she's met the Doctor um, mm. so yeah it, it makes sense in that and obviously yeah. the, the Doctor makes a big point of of saving Perry from from this uh, from being permanently turned into a parrot it's Hopefully, not a parrot yeah. I'm, just, yeah, I'm just taking the <laughs> Um
1: it was nice to hear that the Doctor and Perry had some off screen time Mm-hmm. At the start of this story, um, he even burned to cold dinner. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. So, th- th- yeah, so there was some nice humour. I mean, apparently Philip Martin had actually written some humorous scenes in, but for running time they got edited out. So virus actually becomes a, was actually became a much darker story than perhaps was originally intended.
1: A very dark story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, just, just as a reminder for listeners when we were talking about uh, Revelation of the Daleks uh, in the previous podcast I mentioned the, the making of documentary that's on the DVD and I cannot take the introduction of it seriously because it's, it's um, it begins the introduction with all this footage of the story and you've got all these people involved in the documentary who just talk about how it's an incredibly dark story and they really labour the point because you've got all these people. It's a kind of dark story. Yes, it was a very dark story, and you've even got Terry just going. You could almost taste how dark it was. It's just, I can't take it seriously. I was cr- I was just laughing my head off.
1: <laughs> we'll have to check that out.
0: So yeah, Avengers of Eris is a very dark story. You can almost taste how dark it is, <laughs> um, but it was supposed to be a little bit frothy around the edges. Or I don't know, whatever. Um, yeah, so yeah, that that was a nice that was a nice moment, and just the doctors are going, That was unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, actually, because one thing that uh, we well, haven't talked about is the is the performances in this story, and you know, I mean, I've always liked Colin Baker as an actor, and I've always liked Colin Baker uh, as the Doctor, but watching this uh, again, I, it just hit me, you know, how bloody good an actor he he was. I just thought his his performance here in this story is just. I just thought it was excellent. Mm. Uh, I, just, I just, I mean, one, I feel that's that's important to mention because I think Colin Baker is genuinely a very good actor and was genuinely a very good doctor. Um, I, I, I mean, he was tret appallingly and, you know, has the unfortunate distinction of being the only actor to have been fired from the role. But that was completely unfair. And, um, you know it's it's stories like this you just go no no his his dismissal from the show was completely unfair it was appalling and actually if you want to see how good a bloody actor he is i mean you could pick pretty much any story but obviously you want to pick the performance which which also happens to marry up to a good story i'd pick this one um for for that reason alone as well, as well as what else we were talking about and, you know and, and that isn't just you know take away from anything from Nicola Bryan because you know she's very good and uh, the guest actors are re- I mean Neil Shaban Sil is, is just superb uh, and Martin Jarvis who plays the governor is um, puts in an absolutely sterling performance yeah in fact, the, or, or what the, does Sil call him the, the governor <laughs> <laughs> yes yes he does um, and the <laughs> I going to do it now, but I'm not going to be able to do it as, as good as that. Um, and uh, the governor is is a fantastic um, character because he's sort of the good guy, but he isn't because he wants he he he's trying to do the the good thing, but he's fighting a regime of which he is a part. So even though he's trying to do the right thing, he can only do so by. By um acting on the appalling nature of the situation he is trying to prevent it- I wonder
1: if the fact that the governor's mortality is at stake uh I wonder if that's a detriment to the whole system
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because ultimately it's some at some stage um yeah the the whole system could be brought down, possibly the way it was. Because because their life's at stake, so they'll be making some very profound choices.
0: Yeah, but then if you're if you're living in a situation where, but again, it goes into that point where I was talking about. If if everyone's just thinking about the immediate short term, and the governor's trying to make long term improvements, you know, you, you're constantly up against that. You can do nothing but fail. Yeah. Um, I think just and,
1: all society is unsustainable.
0: The Bell Podcast. Always being optimistic. Um <laughs> God, I've suddenly become depressed. I wonder why. Um, yeah, but, but I think it's it's very interesting that that the, the governor's character, he is he's sort of a good guy, but he's not. He's morally ambiguous. But the reason being is because it's like what I've said, you know, he's part of the, the very system that he's trying to get away from. Um, but you can't fully get away from that because that's the world you're in you're gonna have to you know and um you can kind of see that with the way that he he behaves with perry he wants to do the right thing you know because he, he can see that she's not a threat but the means of him trying to get what he wants is threaten perry threaten her with the capture of the doctor and, and, and so on, That you know, there's an awful lot going on. And of course, the, the people that he is that he is supposed to be working on are supposed to be on his side are in the pocket of Sill and the Galatron Mining Company. So they're not helping the situation either, just as a means of lining their own pockets. And, you know, that's something that we see an awful lot. And again, not wanting to go into it, but it's been very interesting to see how the current British conservative government are have been lining not all of them but a number of um cabinet ministers have been lining their pockets with the current situation and making quite a mint uh out of our misfortune i'm not bitter anyway um you know so again you know that's you know the, the history is littered with all these sort of examples as well as the current world that we're living in so you know, this is not, not nothing entirely new but again it's a, this other element that that Philip Martin has incorporated into the story um, but again it doesn't I mean you could go I mean we're rattling off all these things and yet the story doesn't feel like it's just hemmed in with too many ideas it all feels natural it, again it goes back into how the characters are written I think it's it's done incredibly yeah. well it's like all,
1: all the all the mechanics are there yeah, if, yeah. nothing's um, not too much emphasis on each part
0: yeah, I mean I mean I mean some of these elements are much more obvious than others. I mean we have this whole idea you know we, we it's again it, we know that the the legal system on Varros as well is is completely um well, pretty much non-existent because there's this moment when the doctor is apparently going to be executed and one of the guards tells him that uh, his appeal um was rejected. I'm terribly sorry. And the doctor's response is, "So would I be, if I asked for one." Okay. You know. So it's just, you know, it's just this automatic thing, just regurgitating something for the sake of it. But so this apparent legal thing—it's—it's it's, it's a, it's a nonsense. So again, you know, that—that's another element that—that's there. Um, you, once again, telling you why Varos is a crock of crap, and you sure as hell wouldn't want to live there. But it—you know—it's just one line of dialogue which says an awful lot.
1: Mm-hmm yeah and everyone's controlled by fear mm. and we've got that scene with the the double vote at the end yes um
0: voter fraud mm. <laughs> mm. uh <laughs> I'm not saying a word um yeah <laughs> yes um yeah in the fact again you, the fact that you know you've got this system which you know allows someone to easily take the vote of another uh Subtle and it's it's dramatic, but again, it says an awful lot. You know, as I said before, there's an off, there's there's a lot of very important themes within the story, but it's it's done so skillfully. You know, it, it doesn't feel like loads of things have been chucked at the story just to see what sticks. No, it's expertly written. I mean, because I'm going to start wrapping this up, I think now. Uh, but before I do, is there anything that you uh, that you want to mention about this? Because I don't I don't want to miss anything.
1: Well, there's a lot more substance to this story than I'd remembered. Performance wise, you are right, Colin Baker's performance is very good. Um I was quite young when I started watching Colin Baker. Um my first experience being trailer the Time Lord. And I think I was too young to be distracted by the whole appearance. Um, I just saw him as he was a doctor. <laughs> um and he he did well, he had a good performance. Um, I wonder if this early on in his run, um, I wonder if some grown-up viewers would have been um, a bit distracted by that.
0: I mean, it, it's one of those unfortunate things that when you're looking at a Colin Baker story or you're reviewing the era, at some point, you're going to have to mention the costume. I mean, you can't help it. I'm the same. The very first um, Colin Baker story I saw was *Trial of the Time*. Ty- uh, Trial of a Time Lord. So, uh, same. Um, and like you, I wasn't bothered about the costume. And I think a part of that is because you're a kid, and kids like bright colours. And you've just got this hero in an incredibly brightly coloured costume, mm. who's loud and brash, and is, is is heroic because he's not hiding in the shadows. Um, he's I mean. Like it-
1: you can you know, think in so... in retrospect could they've done it better but i think no it's a sign of the times you've even got that um that chair in the tARDIS in this episode like this pink <laughs> blue chair which is absolutely disgusting <laughs> but it's just a sign it's a sign of the times
0: <laughs> it, it is very much so i mean it's one of those funny things where I, I don't mind the costume but i do as a kid i certainly didn't mind but i think when you're older and you understand drama Having a costume like that, it, it, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't help because actually, what, I mean, funnily enough, I think probably Vengeance on Varos is is one one of the stories where it doesn't bother me so much, and I think the reason being is because the rest of, in terms of the lighting and in terms of the the set designs and the other costumes, everything is subdued, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a very muted color palette, and and then somehow. And I think a big part of this is actually how the story is lit. Um, Colin Baker's costume doesn't seem to bother me too much. It's when, and I can understand why this was the case. If you look at other Colin Baker stories, I think what ended up happening is because you've you've got this, I mean, that is a loud costume. It's incredibly bright. And I think a lot of the other designers that came in going, right, in order for, I'm lumbered with this, this monstrosity this explosion in a rainbow factory so in order for it to not appear to punch you in the face as a viewer what I'm going to have to do is is make it less pronounced and in order to make it less pronounced what I have to do is make all the other costumes somehow garish and as well as the set designs and <laughs> increase their garishness and then what ends up happening is you have an incredibly garish cheap looking show so I think the big I, I don't think I think the costume is a mistake because it says the wrong thing about the character and I think it ended up having a negative effect in other ways that perhaps Jonathan Turner because it was his decision to have that sort of costume um ended up having an effect in a way that probably he didn't you know he didn't imagine as a producer um no. but actually I think funny enough because you have I actually think that I think the, the the two stories where the costume isn't too much of a problem is the twin dilemma because you could argue well the Doctor just come out of an uh, out of a regeneration his mind is addled and the costume is a parody of all his predecessors' costumes because there's elements you can point to it and going well you know that's a parody of the fifth Doctor, that was a parody of the first and third and so on. So it works there. I think it works in this story because actually, I don't know, I I think it's the lighting and as I said, the muted colour palettes of everyone else, it just somehow, somehow works. I'm not really bothered by it. And almost for the same reason, Mark of the Rani.
1: Oh, also the two Doctors, when he's not wearing his jacket...
0: Yeah, but I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there. It works because he's not <laughs> he wearing took it a off. coat. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, that point's mute. Okay. Right.
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, he's still wearing bloody yellow trousers. I do like his waistcoat in the Two Doctors. Yes. I mean, definitely. you could see someone wearing that in real life. I think. Could you? Could you? <laughs>
1: well, I don't know. No. But... <laughs> <laughs> um. So yes, as I was saying great story a lot of substance to it um reflections of society in many ways totalitarianism um mm-hmm. reality tv i never thought those two things would go hand in hand but there you go maybe there's a um connection there <laughs> yeah policies and politics driven by commodity prices trade disputes lies fear it's all the darker side of humanity um
0: it's twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, actually, one because it's like what you said before. There are some wonderful lines of dialogue. One I've just remembered is when Eric says, "When did they last show something worth watching?" Last week. That was a repeat. Um, I love that. I just think that's uh, that's a nice little uh, comic line. Yeah. So, so to, you know, so, so wrapping it up. So. Um, Obviously, the, the the doctor's presence has marked a, a huge change in, in what has happened, and the doctor manages to inform the governor actually that the true price of Ziton Seven, and that you know that causes this chain reaction, and Syl loses his position, and uh, the governor now because he um, he's not hampered by uh, the people who were hindering him because they're dead. Um so he's able to govern how he wants in order to improve the lives of the people of Varos. So now he's in a strong economic position. And uh he hopefully <laughs> yeah. And well yeah, because at the end he, he manages to make a a deal which he wanted in the first place 20 credits per unit for Zeiton 7. Whereas early he he was struggling to to ask for seven credits per unit, but now he's in a strong position; he can ask for twenty, um, which which goes ahead. And then he makes the announcement to everyone. I mean, it's it's a huge radical change that there will be no more of the way that Varos has run. Or well, that's the intention because I'm going to come onto this in a second. But you know, there will be no more torture, no more of the these. Uh, intrusive videos into people's homes and so on and again i mean it's it's a bleak ending but it's incredibly realistic so now we're you know we're focused on Arik and etta who are aware of all these changes and it goes, no more executions torture nothing it's all changed we're free and then Arik says what shall we do and then etta it's a fantastic again it's a fantastic performance from from the actress she does this brilliant thing Where her face fills up with the hope and the possibilities of a bright and wonderful future. But then there's doubt that creeps on her face. And is it, well, how are we going to do these wonderful things? And so, you know, so that's her response to what shall we do? And then she goes, don't know.
1: And then that's it. That's the end of the story. I almost expected them to say, what else is on? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's the uncertainty being in a dictatorship. It's never, um, it's never a good place. But um, with the freedom comes a lot of uncertainty, um, which in turn comes with fear. But um, it's freedom nonetheless.
0: <laughs> but that's our thing as well, because we're left on that uncertainty, and it's up to you, the viewer, of going well. Do they manage to make a good go of it and have a bright future? Or do they end up falling into the same traps and life on Varos still remains crap?
1: Yeah, because there'll be, there'll be a vacuum um, and yeah. the economy will change. Yeah, who knows? We'll be yeah. optimistic. But it won't, <laughs> but it won't last.
0: <laughs> no. So, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's bleak, but at the same time, I think it's thought-provoking. It's very engaging as well. And I think it gets the right balance. I mean, I do, yes, it's it's bleak, certainly in terms of the themes and how the story you know, ends, as I said. But I wouldn't say it's it's an absolutely thoroughly depressing viewing experience. It's I mean, it's still Doctor Who. It's still exciting. It's still interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so yeah, um, yeah. Onto the score.
0: Well, before we for gone there, uh, I just want to I mean, oh yes, listeners' responses. I mean, I'm laughing because. I don't know what it is, listeners. What is it about the stories that I pick? I mean, do I have appalling taste? Do you not like the stories I'm picking? Because for whatever reason, I mean, I'm really grateful for the people who have gotten contact. But uh, for whatever reason, the stories that I pick don't get that many responses. Rob's stories you seem to love. You can't, you never <laughs> shut the hell up and give us all your responses. Although, nothing could be worse because my favorite Hartnell story is The Crusade. It's the one, pod- one podcast we haven't received any listeners' no responses No one got in before. touch. Yeah. No, I'm still hurting from that. It's awful. Oh. But, uh, but anyway, yes. So I want to thank very much uh, Adam Martin, who got in contact, and he said, Deliciously Dark, invoking a concept of disturbing television that arguably has even Im- more impact now than it did in 1985. Would love to see a return to Varos and see how the concept can be adapted and developed. Uh, which I think I agree with yeah I think uh, it's one of those things I kind of like the story just being on its own but there's enough there to do
1: a sequel it, yes you know. um, the, there is a danger I think if it was revisited now it would be given more not they wouldn't try and give it a politically correct correct message but maybe they'd keep, try to give they'd try to impart some kind of message whereas, whether it's um a popular moral view or not? Do you think there's always there's always an underlying theme that they try to pass on? Um, in, well, I mean, I
0: mean, we've talked about veg, re- I mean, relevant th- stories. Yeah. I mean, well, Philip Martin has, has obviously. I mean, this is a political story through and through. That, you know, there's an awful lot of themes there. But I think, I think actually, this is one instance where this was a fantastic idea, and I'm so grateful that it was told in 1985 because actually they were able to to pretty much set the tone for what they wanted. I think that if you were to have this story done now, I think it would be th- that um that bleakness and how Varos is, I think would be tempered. And I think certainly because as I said, I think genuinely one of the strengths is is uh, because of how realistic it is is that very end conversation when they don't know what to do with the freedom that they now have. Um that I don't I don't think you would have that sense of doubt now I think you would get an ending that would be much more hopeful I think it might be I mean I don't know it might be an instance of where uh, a sequel to the story might work better if if Big Finish did it rather than Television
1: Doctor yeah I don't know although didn't that um, movie with Silk come out recently
0: yes it did Moving on, um, no, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, I can't really comment because I haven't, I haven't actually seen it, but I have seen clips of it, and I mean, it's not, it's, I don't know whether they can be blamed for this. It's just one of those things where clearly it was, I think it was a labour of love, and it's one of those things where the lack of a budget shows.
1: I've never been um, so much of a completist that I need to collect all the authorised fan produced content
0: no no one needs to see that um (laughs) sorry uh, I can't I can't help it I I should be kinder I mean I should watch it actually before casting any aspersions on it but let's face it it'll be crap anyway so um gruntly the (laughs) ogron sorry gruntly the ogron um do the voice what an (laughs) ogron No, that'll be disrespectful. Gruntly, the ogre one's kindly got you know. And you think I'll be mocking him? I can't do the voice. You do the voice.
1: No, I'm not doing the voice. You've scared me now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I could, maybe just do the one where uh, you know in Day of the Daleks, where you know you got you know you got the ogre just going, uh, "We found and destroyed the enemy." Any complications? <laughs> no complications. Uh, just like, hang on. What happened to your voice there? That's a bit odd. Anyway, Gruntly, the ogre had said, "It not violent enough." so they yes true yeah yeah. and uh doctor who the target world has got in contact with us again thank you very much um said it's a very interesting outlook on capitalism and has a great character introducing the fabulous sill and good performance from colin baker and yes totally agree with that sill is a fantastic uh villain just in terms of again it goes into the writing uh and the costume design, although I feel sorry for Nabil Shaban having to having to wear that because I dare say it was very uncomfortable. But he does a fantastic, fantastic performance.
1: Yeah, there's nothing else quite like it.
0: Yeah. Um I mean no other actor could have could have played the part. Um just absolute perfect casting. And it's one of those things as well, um I'm so pleased that they were able to bring him back. Um, in Trial of a Time Lord. So, now, conclusion and score.
1: So, over to you, Rob. Okay, um, well, I pretty much summed up my feelings about the story. Well, I think it's not one of the great Doctor Who stories, but what it does do, it does great. And I think I kind of agree with what Gruntly said earlier. It's not violent enough, so... (laughs) I have gave it a nine out of ten.
0: Ah, fantastic! Right, okay. Um, that's interesting, because uh, as I said, you know I can see where you're coming from, and I can kind of agree, uh, agree with you. I mean, maybe not being the what did you say? Not necessarily the greatest Doctor Who story, but what it does, it does great. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, th- I think that's actually quite fair. I mean, as I said, you know, I really love the story, and it's it's one of my all-time favourites, not just in terms of the Colin Baker era, but Doctor Who in general. So it's interesting, I've given it a slightly lower score than you have, although I still think it's, it's respect, respectful. I think the reason why I've given it a slightly lower score is maybe i am little funny enough, even though I love the story, maybe I'm being a little bit overly critical, and it goes back to what I was saying before, the way that it is not entirely just um, just a little bit of how those early scenes between the Doctor and Perry are written um Mm. i'm not i I think that could have been maybe done a a little bit better but the rest of the story is fantastic so i've given it an eight out of ten that's that's a fair score (laughs) yeah um so yeah happy with that
1: so considering it's your favorite i liked it more than you
0: (laughs) yes you did um there you are it's a funny old world yes uh, but yeah it, I think it's fantastic in fact to be perfectly honest i, I th- I've got a funny feeling I'll be watching it again very soon uh because there's an awful lot of stuff in there to enjoy and just get your teeth into um i think it's a very rich um story but it, everything just unfolds at exactly the right pace and i, I just think it's uh, just think it's amazing um and definitely a highlight of the colin area it's it's Because it's a bit of a funny era. I mean, I I think at some point it'd be quite good if perhaps we we do some podcasts analysing each of the Doctor's eras at some point. Uh, And certainly when it comes to Colin Baker's era, I think there's an awful lot to be said. And I think for me, when it comes to Vengeance on Varos, it's, you know... Because there are some... You know, there are some things which are unfortunately poor about the era... um, which I think is accepted but there are some fantastic things about the era and you know for me this is you know this is one of them
1: yeah such a short-lived era um and I think we had a good run of stories
0: Mm. yeah as you say you're very very short-lived I think some of the stories which are poorly regarded I think some of them Deserve to be reevaluated. Some of them do deserve a little bit of their poor reputation, but I tell you one thing that the, the era wasn't short of, and it wasn't short of ideas. Um, you know, it's 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 crammed full of them, and it's certainly not. I mean, one thing you definitely can't say about this era is it certainly wasn't dull, regardless of whether you like it or not. I don't think anyone could say it was it wasn't dull.
1: dull. It was very dark. It wasn't dull.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So yes, so. That's Rob and I having now reviewed our favourite Colin Baker stories, and obviously we will be looking at our favourite Sylvester McCoy stories as well.
1: Um, yes, um, I think we can announce the next the next McCoy story right now. I believe.
0: Y- uh, yep. So it'll be Rob's favourite McCoy story.
1: Uh, yeah, it is Ghostlight. One from the back end of his era
0: yeah but it is a classic and uh i'm look i'm really looking forward to re-watching that one so should be uh, should be good uh until next time bye everyone
1: the tardis cloister bell imminent disaster the cloister bell yes what's that well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell?
0: Oh, No.